Thank you for having us this morning, and uh, thank you for your support of the campus ministry at Western Kentucky, where uh, God is at work, and uh, graciously uh, pushing His gospel forward. Our passage this morning is from Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. If you are new to the Bible or new to the church, you will find a home in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is in the back of the Bible, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And um, Luke was written to uh, a a, a Greek gentleman that was possibly a skeptic. Possibly, uh, it's a little up in the air, but it's a good possibility that he was not yet a Christian or he was on his way to becoming a Christian. So Luke uh, writes with him in mind. And he had a cool name. His name was Theophilus. So if you want to be really Christian and and godly, name your kid Theophilus. Because it's in the Bible. Okay. Verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him, told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. Let me pray. Lord, thank You, as has been prayed already, for the glory of Jesus. Even the blessing of hearing the Word read. Lord, we pray that those who are here this morning who are Christians would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus that those who are not would be drawn to Him, that they would see more clearly the precious message that is the Gospel. We ask this in His name. Amen. Uh, Recently, I went to the eye doctor and got new glasses, which I am not wearing this morning because they need adjusted, and every time I wear them, they give me a headache. But I also got a great deal on prescription glasses. It was if you buy this first pair, you get this second pair half price. And they were the nice pair. And for some reason, they were in the discount group. And so I now have two pair of prescription glasses that are new that I don't wear. I wear my old glasses. But I don't like glasses. They get in the way, don't they, if you wear glasses. We can make them look cool. We can make them look sharp. 
We can make them look stylish, but they really still just get in the way, right? And every time I go to the eye doctor, I'm reminded of this. That one day, as one of my friends says, one day, someday, I will not need glasses anymore. You ever think about that? One day, you who have eye issues will no longer have them. No more glaucoma, no more cataracts, no more failing sight. I have a friend named Way Rutherford who's the RUF campus minister at Louisville. And recently I visited him. Their second son, their youngest son, uh, was born deaf and needs implants at the age of one. And obviously it's been a, a heavy, heavy issue in their life. And right before I left, I prayed with Way and I thought, you know, I'm going to go up there and minister to Way. I'm the older pastor here and I'm going to go pray with Way. And I was moved while praying with Way when he said very plainly and very simply, Lord, open Davis's ears that he may hear. Thought that is glorious because that is what Jesus does in a nutshell in a Christian's life. If you are a Christian, you are saying, I am blind, I am deaf, Jesus, have mercy on me, heal me. And Jesus will not only do that the day you first cry that out. He will do it at any point in your Christian journey when you realize that there are still caverns of blindness in your life. If you are not a Christian and you have the guts and the courage to admit that your life is a mess and it's not as nice as you pose it to be, you may find a friend in Jesus who can heal you. It is the great hope of the Bible, of the gospel message that your salvation is not just personal, that you alone can be healed, but that the world one day will be healed. That Jesus will complete the work of the first coming that He began. And He's going to put it all back together. Again, And that is a hint, that is a glimpse of what we see in this passage. We start with a crowd. Look at verses 35 and 36. Jesus, the growing in fame rabbi, the teacher, is coming into town. And as I am told in a Middle Eastern culture, because I went to seminary and get paid to read commentaries, I am told that as a... As a a guest would come with a prestigious name. Crowds would go even 10 miles outside of the village to meet the guest. And they would accompany him in, showing his importance and his prestige. They would escort him or her into the village. And that is exactly what happens as Jesus approaches Jericho. This blind man is sitting by the roadside begging, doing his normal day-to-day thing. And in verse 36, 
He hears a crowd going by. He knows something big is going on. It would be the same thing if the governor came to Owensboro or the president or, as I joke with my students, if Western Kentucky won a football game, the whole city would meet them at the airport to celebrate. But we don't win football games at Western Kentucky. And so you see this normal atmosphere of this crowd following Jesus And what do you notice about the crowd here? Look again at verses 35 and 36. They like Jesus. They're following Him. They know there's something about Jesus. And yet in verses 37 through 39, they are trying to bar someone from coming to Jesus. So in other words, they show honor to Jesus, and yet they don't get Jesus. you see that? The blind man cries out. They say, be quiet. Literally, in another gospel, a good translation is, children, what your parents won't let you say. It's literally, shut your mouth. He doesn't have time for you. They show honor to Jesus, and yet they don't get Jesus. And then in verse 43, when Jesus heals the man, what do they do? They praise God for it. If you jumped ahead to the story of Zacchaeus, what you see is that they praise God when Jesus heals the oppressed, but they get mad at Jesus when He heals the oppressor. Isn't that interesting? What is the point? The first point is this, that crowds are fickle. Crowds are fickle. They're confused. They are not trustworthy. I have a very good friend who looks just like the lead singer of the most popular band of the past 20 years, which would be the Beatles. Now, that's way back. U2. The lead singer from the Irish band U2, Bono, he looks just like him. And when he puts this hat on that Bono wears, he looks just like him. He puts sunglasses on, looks just like him. And I've always said, you need to go in an airport and just walk around and watch what happens. Crowds are going to follow you. Of course, you'd get in trouble today. But he and his wife went to Ireland for a concert to see you too. And because he's a very joking-mannered man, he went to the hotel where Bono, the lead singer, was staying, and he ate dinner with his wife. And as he came out, people started seeing him, and the murmur started. You could hear it. People were talking, there's Bono, there's Bono. And crowds were coming, can you give me your autograph? And he hams it up and plays it up and gives them the autograph and does an Irish accent. And literally, there was this elderly gentleman that walked up to him and said, Thank you for all you've done for Ireland. Thank you, Bono. And the man walked off. Ten minutes later, he came back and said, I missed me bus because I just want to say thank you again. Of course, he probably felt bad at that point. But there is a warning in this passage. There is a warning. Sometimes crowds 
don't know what they're talking about. And of course, we get that for our children. We talk about peer pressure, what everybody's doing. But these were adults. These were religious adults following the rabbi who didn't get Jesus. Jesus himself said that wide is the gate and many are on it. Many are on it. It's interesting that crowds convicted Jesus and the disciples denied Jesus in fear of crowds. I would simply ask you on a personal note this morning, where are you, even from religious crowds, feeling pressure today to be a certain way? To appear a certain way? While at the same time, you may be pushing Jesus away. That is the warning in this chapter. That's the crowd. The second thing is the blind man. Look at verse 35. Very normal, natural situation. A blind man sitting by a roadside begging. In their culture, actually, there was some... The man had more honor than we would have today. My, my children talk about the people that live by the river. And they never cast them in good terms. But this man, actually, um, you, were, you were applauded for giving money to him. That was a way you showed um, respect for the poor in God's eyes. So, it wasn't, in some sense, how we think, but... Definitely, the man's life had a downside to it. Not only was he blind, but he had to beg for his livelihood. He had to rely on the generosity of others. He had to depend on the assistance of others. In his culture, he was at the bottom Mark actually says in his gospel, his name is Bartimaeus, which means the son of filth. Not a great nickname, is it? There's my buddy, the son of filth. There's my buddy, Stinky. The poor guy, the hobo. And you can see why the crowd tells him to shut his mouth. But there's an upside to his life, isn't there? There's an upside because you see a blessing in his blindness. Look at his theology. Of all of the crowd, he's the one person that understands who Jesus is. He calls him by his Old Testament designation, Son of David. The one who is to bring mercy, relief of suffering. Son of David, have mercy on me. Listen, it is audiology. And I can say that because my wife was a speech therapist, audiologist. I always used to call her therapist, audiologist. The guy couldn't see, but he could scream, couldn't he? He could scream. They tell him to be quiet, and he cries even louder. He doesn't care about the crowd. Don't you wish you had that kind of courage? 
My goodness. The son of filth sees the son of David. The blind man is the only person in the passage who has sight. Isn't that the paradox of the gospel? God uses the weakness to propel us to see. One of my favorite preachers, Joe Novenson, out of Lookout Mountain, Chattanooga, tells the story of this young man that comes into his office and his fiance had just broken it off with him and he was devastated. All his plans, marriage, his future was shot down and he, is, he comes to Joe. He wants to take his life and Joe prays with him. Joe reads the Bible with him. Joe counsels him. And he says, I could just tell the man was so downcast, nothing was working. And he said, son, I want you to come with me. He said, where are we going? He said, I want you to go meet another woman. And he said, I don't need another woman. And he said, oh, you need this woman. He took the young man to see Marion Smart, who was 90 years old and lived in a retirement home, who in Joe's estimation was the prayer warrior of his entire ministry. She had polymyositis, which basically meant her connective tissue breaks down. Her skin splits. It's where Joe would go when he was depressed. And Marion would love on Joe, sing with him, pray for him. So he takes this young man and he's flabbergasted. He doesn't know what's going on. And he says, look, she likes cheeseburgers from such and such place. Every Friday night you bring her cheeseburgers and you have a date with Marion Smart. And he left. He said two months later, he went by to visit someone and he walked by Marion's room and there were a bunch of 20-year-olds and a bunch of people from the home having a Bible study. Later on, that young man would get married and ask Marion Smart to be in his wedding. And Joe's point and this point is that there is blessing and weakness. There is blessing and blindness. There is, that is the heart of the gospel. That not just spiritually that we're broken and we're falling apart and that we need Jesus, but the things that cause us to fall apart in life, the things we resist are the very things that very often God uses in our lives, aren't they? Only the Christian message has that. Any other religion is if, you, if it comes at you hard and bad, you've done something wrong. And sometimes we can subvert that for the gospel too. What is it that God is using in your life right now that you can't manage anymore? Some of you who have children, like me, 
Basically, our goals for our children, if they are Christian, well, is that they would become Christians, that they would wait until they're married, that they would avoid alcohol and drugs, and that they would never be broken by anything. Would you rather, not wishing upon them, that they go through whatever it takes than to grow up having it all together and never needing Jesus. I think I would. Let's look at Jesus. We've looked at the crowd, we've looked at the blind man, and lastly, look at Jesus. Jesus is on His way into town with this crowd that doesn't get Him. This man is crying out, Please be quiet. He cries out louder. Look at verse 40. What's the first thing it says about Jesus? What's the first thing that He does? It's very simple. He stops. Jesus stops in the face... I want you to think about this. this, is, this I can't even... There's no way I can preach this across. The Holy Spirit has to do this. Do you realize that in your weakness, in your brokenness, that if you cry out to Jesus, He stops? In other words, you have Jesus' complete attention. Children, Do you ever feel like you have your parents' complete attention? I told my students writing up, I got this darn iPhone that I don't like. I've been avoiding it for four years. I don't want it. But because I'm a campus minister, I'm either lugging a heavy laptop that's five years old or I'm taking this small iPhone. So I'm using it. And I don't want my kids to think I'm texting all the time And it never fails. Nobody's in the kitchen. And I finally go to text. And one of them comes around the room wants to engage me in some deep discussion. Dad, you're always on your phone. No, I'm really not. Jesus is never on His phone when you cry out. He stops and gives you His complete attention. And look at verse 40. What's the next thing He does? It's, it's almost you can read over. He orders the man to be brought to him. Well, of course he does. That's very pragmatic. But what's he doing? God is issuing a commandment. This blew me away. It took me three times preaching this passage to get this. What do you think of when you think of God's commandments? Well, if you're like me... And the first time you read Psalm 119, even though you love Jesus, you went, oh my goodness, the law is good? I can't do this. It's like gold and honey. And of course, the older you get, you realize it is good. It protects you from this and it's beautiful. But that's not how we normally think of the commandments. If you're honest in your heart, you're going, I just can't keep them. Or they're hard. or they're..." And of course, we can talk about that all day. But what's the first commandment? Come to me. Yes, it's love God. I get that. What's the first commandment? 
Love God. Come to Me. Bring the man to Me. And if you're a Christian, your tendency is to throw that command away. But the heart of sanctification, growing in as a Christian, is coming to Jesus. Over and over and over. Collapsing into Jesus. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you pull away from me, you can do nothing. You will die spiritually. You will dry up. Bring Fritz games to me. I know he's been trying to handle his marriage on his own. And that's why he's so mad right now. Then he asks a question, verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? Some people, commentators who I think don't rub shoulders with average people, don't get this. That seems heartless. Why would Jesus... Look, I think Jesus is just involving the man in the process. Ask me, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't it always better, children, when you get to ask your parents... Can I have that cinnamon roll? Sure you can. Jesus is involved. And then the best part is this. Verse 43. He grants him his sight. He says, receive your sight. Can you imagine what that was like for this guy? Can you imagine being blind and begging And having Jesus say, all you're trying to cure it, all the things you've given up on, it's over. You're healed. And what we see is that Jesus, who will one day do this on a grand scale, that more of your non-Christian friends need to hear about and not just their sin. They know they're sinners. They need to know about a new heavens and a new earth that is so glorious it's better than any drunken fit in any party that they go to. It's better. It's better. You need to tempt them with this. That one day He's coming back and there will be an earth under their feet that is glorious. And there will be a relationship of love that you can't describe The Bible doesn't even talk much about heaven because it can't describe it to us, Paul says. It's indescribable. I'm sure my children have that song on their iPod if it's a song. Jesus loves to grant our request for healing. Jesus loves to stop for our needs. That is the point of the story. A good friend of mine who used to live in New Orleans started the PCA church plant down there that many of you probably have heard of or maybe even taken a trip to. Said while he was there, he went to two PGA golf championships or tournaments that they had in New Orleans and he's a big golfer, loves to golf and I can see a couple of you talking to people like I golf and you're going to love the story. His favorite golfer is Phil Mickelson, okay? And so he went to the the tournament his first year, 
and his boy, his son was with him. And he saw Phil Mickelson. He said, huh, I know how I can get his autograph. I'll have my son go ask. And so he did. And Mickelson looked at him and said, son, I can't do it right now, but I promise you, if you will stay with me through the whole match and you will come, uh, come to the scores tent, the first person I see when I come out of the scores tent will be you. Jeffrey said, he did it. He made it. I made him make it. And so they go to the scores tent at the end. At the very end, Phil Mickelson comes out and he looks at him and says, there you are. And he comes and he gets down on a knee and starts talking to him and says, I am so glad you came to see me play. I am your biggest fan. And he signs autograph and he gives him this. Jeffrey's like, oh, this is unbelievable. The next year, they go back. And now both of his boys are there. And they don't get there till about the 14th hole. And they're kind of in a crowd and Phil tees off. And when Phil's done, he goes to sit down and he looks across the crowd. And he gets up, walks across the green, lifts the red thing, Walks through the crowd. My buddy says, I'm like, oh, i got to get out of his way. He's, he's going somewhere. Walks right up to my friend and his boys and says, I can't believe you came back. I am so glad that you're here. Gives him a golf glove, gives him tees, gives him the ball, signs again. Follow me the whole way. I'm your biggest fan. He said, the crowd, guess what happened? Erupted. Erupted. More than any tee shot Phil ever hit. One day, crowds will erupt. And the church will actually be that crowd. For once, we'll be in the majority. And we will do more than wave palm branches. For the rest of eternity, we will give praise to God. That is something to shout about. Let's pray. Father, thank You that this is true. No matter how well we believe it, how good of a day we're having or how bad of a day. Thank You, Lord, that these are based on Your promises. These are based on the first coming of Jesus who inaugurated such a kingdom. Lord, I pray that You would fix our eyes upon Him, upon our future and how that affects even our present. That, Lord, You would give us crowds, even today, who praise Your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.